Worcester, Massachusetts. Washington, D.C. Juliet, Illinois. Kitchener, Ontario. Apple Valley, Minnesota. Houston, Texas. From Hollywood. And we're here at the TCM Classic Film Festival. I feel like I'm in heaven, really. <laughs> it is just a phenomenal, immersive experience. Everyone's sharing the same emotions at the same time. It's, it's a community. It's a community of film lovers. It's almost like a lifestyle. And of course, you get to see the stars. This has become a tradition. We do it every year now. This is our second year. This is my third. I've been at all five festivals. This is my first festival. It's four days of classic film fun. This excitement could not happen anywhere else but here. The TCM Classic Film Festival 2015, March 26th through the 29th. For more updates, go to tcm.com festival. You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. Hello, listeners, and thank you for returning once again to the Horrible Imaginings podcast. And we're in the middle of a very busy week because I have just gotten back, well... By just gotten back, I mean this morning, very, very early, back home in San Diego from the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival, where not only was I sleep-deprived and denied proper sustenance, but I also had one of the best times of my entire life watching classic films. Today is my wrap-up episode for the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival, I decided to ask some people about their highlights at the closing night party. So I'll start with a little montage of their memories. Now these people are all from the TCM party. What does that mean? Well, on Twitter, pretty much 24 hours a day at this point, you can go on to Twitter, search the hashtag TCM party, and you'll find people watching Turner Classic Movies on television and uh, discussing the film, or live-tweeting, as they call it, with everybody else. It's kind of like watching movies with friends. It just happens to be with friends who are in different parts of the planet at the same time. It's one of my favorite ways to use Twitter. Tweet-alongs like TCM Party and Drive-In Mob and such. I am standing here at the closing night of the 2015 TCM Film Festival Party with Danny Zilber, who posts on Twitter as Next on TCM. Santa is thinking, should I call you Nitrate Diva? I'm standing here with Joel R. Williams, a.k.a. Joel R. Williams 1 on Twitter. Alan Height, H-A-I-T, if you want to follow. I'm talking to Mariah, old film slicker on Twitter. The mother of Nitrate Diva. I believe Twitter is mid-parent. Why don't you tell me, now that we're wrapping things down, what memories you're going to take home from this year's festival? I'll say the loved one and seeing Robert Morse introduce the loved one and being everything I hoped and more yeah. uh, was really tremendous. Gunga Din, I love that intro on how San was created. Ben and Craig, yeah. And, you know, and that plus the movie itself is one of my favorites and it's genesis of almost Indiana Jones and a whole yeah. bunch of other action oh, flicks. Yeah. I love listening to Norman Lloyd talk about his amazing 100 years on this planet, seeing Babe Ruth at the 1926 World Series, working with Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, the man is a treasure. 
Um, I loved listening to Shirley MacLaine talk about everybody from, you know, Jack Nicholson to Gene Kelly. That was just astonishing. Um, I, I really love seeing the smiling lieutenant and jazzing up my lingerie with Miriam Hopkins and Claudette Colbert. And I love seeing Reign of Terror, which is this wonderful French Revolution film noir, everything I love in one movie. Just too many highlights to count, but that's a few of them. Definitely the two midnight screenings. Boom, seeing Boom was awesome on the big screen. I'd never seen it before. I've been reading about it since last summer. I know it's uh, John Waters' favorite, or one of his favorites, so I was really excited to see that. Uh, another memory would be seeing Why Be Good, silent film yeah. with Colleen Moore. I'd never seen that. Good that morning. was really great. Seeing a lot of great movies, a lot of memorable experiences. My number one that's going to stick with me the most is probably the event I saw on the first morning, which was the Dawn of Technicolor, ah, which was absolutely fascinating. I've always had an interest and a fascination in how emerging technologies drove the movies and how the movies drove emerging technology. And this really put it all together really very, very well. So I'm, I'm going to go and get the book. I guess the, the second thing that I would say that I enjoyed as far as filmed entertainment was to see the completely restored version of 1776, which I saw on the Broadway stage with that cast as a kid. And, you know, when it's blown up, I'm originally from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw the movie, it was so realistic, I thought that they had filmed on location. That's how realistic it was. But when you watch the movie in that giant size, when you're looking at Independence Hall and when your eyes go to the right of the screen, which is West Philadelphia, the San Mateo Mountains are not in West <laughs> Philadelphia. It looked like, you know, after the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration, they went out to West Philadelphia to go skiing. <laughs> didn't happen. I can't understand why they didn't, you know, wipe it out. But if you watch carefully, you'll see snow-capped mountains where West Philadelphia should be. Keith Carradine, I love him. I got to talk to him. I did not faint. Uh, second thing is Peter Fonda's tie. It had, it had pink dolphins on it. Amazing. I'm taking home that you can live to be 100, a la Norman Lloyd, and still be full of vim and vigor and great stories and Norman Lloyd and I are birthday twins I found out so that gives me hope <laughs> even though I'm half his age and not as full as vim and vigor as he is. I've also noticed that a lot of people tend to point out the same thing when talking about the best parts of the festival and that is this. The real memories are the people that I met here all of the people that I've seen retweeting my tweets and interacting with over the course of four years now, being able to put a face to the Twitter names is really exciting. Great seeing a lot of great friends. Getting to talk to everybody that I only see once a year. Yeah. I love everybody. I talk to people on Twitter, but it's not the same thing, no. you know, and it's just so nice to see everybody. It's like a little family reunion every year. Meeting everybody that I've been friends with on Twitter for a while, and you come here and you meet like-minded souls, and that's the best part. I've been smiling all weekend. As with any convention that I've been to, which is many, whether it's a horror convention or a science fiction convention or a comic book convention like Comic-Con, the unifying principle is in place. And that, and that is where people of similar interests can come together and 
feel less isolated for a certain period of time. Particularly highly niche interests like those and this one classic film would be considered a niche interest to a lot of people, and especially for people as, dare I say, obsessed with classic film as we are. It is a very special thing to spend time with others who would who know what you're talking about when you talk about your love for film over the ages. Now that I've gotten some great memories from some TCM party fans, I'm going to move on to a conversation I had with my sometimes collaborator and friend, Mr. Will McKinley. This was also at the closing night party. I'm standing here with Will McKinley. Will McKinley on Twitter, one of the legion of TCM party members, as well as the author of the Cinematically Insane blog, giving his memories of the 2015 TCM Film Festival. Overall, great experience. Each year it gets better as I connect with more people that I know, you know, from social media and get an opportunity to experience these movies with them in person. They could play any movie made prior to whatever, 1985, and seeing them with this group of people would be positive and fun. I did feel like for the first time ever this year, the programmers who I have enormous respect for focused a little bit too closely on the theme and made it a little bit more of an intellectual exercise than it has been before. I mean, this primarily for me and I think for most of us is an emotional exercise. It's a magical experience. It's not an intellectual endeavor that follows an intellectual theme. I think that there were fewer, harder choices for me this year and frankly, the ones, most of the ones that did not make the cut were the historical films, you know, because that doesn't happen to be my thing. And I don't know that people necessarily travel thousands of miles and spend thousands of dollars to engage in an intellectual endeavor. I think they want to be wowed and they want to experience magic. That said, there was plenty of magic here. For example, the Dawn of Technicolor presentation, seeing some films that hadn't been seen in in 80 plus years was magical. The Return of the Dream Machine, the hand-cranked film projector. I mean, if you are any sort of an old movie buff, old movie weirdo, it was like Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show excitement at that, right? Yes, it was. People seeing that camera. It was a little bit religious for some of us, I would say. No, it was it was totally religious, and I got a chance to see Shirley MacLaine twice, once with The Apartment and once with The Children's Hour. In both cases, she was extraordinarily frank, so that was really positive. Sophia Loren on the closing night with Ben Mankiewicz. It's funny, you know, I really, really miss Robert Osborne, but Ben Mankiewicz brings a very different vibe. He just brings tonally a different approach. And, you know, and I wonder how many people dig that and how many people don't I I happen to so I loved like listening to his interview with Sophia Loren thinking he's kind of sort of vaguely hitting on Sophia Loren <laughs> you know which you would never get from Robert Osborne he got some of the the mojo from George Lazenby the other night well and also he was sort of doing the same thing with Angie Dickinson oh my goodness you know I mean there's something about Ben that he brings out this like you know, whatever, Randy side. <laughs> but it's certainly a less, I don't want to say rigid, but maybe rigid is the word. Well, you know, I mean, you know, Robert Osborne, older guy, you know, different generation, very courtly, yeah. 
you know, and Ben is a, he's a funny guy, you know. I, I don't know if he's ever done stand-up, but he's certainly qualified to do it, you know, and I really, really like his approach. You know, I liked everything about this. I did just find that there were fewer hard choices. Right. It made the decision-making easier sometimes. Do you think that the difficult choices make it a stronger festival? I do. You know, I've, I've said from the beginning, nobody but the programming department cares about the theme. Right. Nobody cares about the theme. We talked about this last year right. for the family theme as well. The theme could be great old movies that you'll love, trust us, and <laughs> people would sign up. And I do think that there's going to be a percentage, I don't know how big, but a percentage of attendees next year who are going to wait to commit until they see the schedule. You know, and, and there's a system of checks and balances in place, and TCM knows that, and they know the social media community has their back 100%, but part of having their back is to keep them honest, you know, and uh, we're going to do that. What do you think about the way the TCM social media machine has been rolling for the last couple of years? They do a great job of, of empowering the bloggers and the tweeters and the people who are active on social media and making them feel like part of the organization. Right. You know, a lot of big media companies are sort of exclusive or exclusionary, mm -hmm. and they're not. They realize that the fans are extraordinarily creative and generate a lot of content, and it's sticky content, and yeah. it's thoughtful content, and the fans can write more effectively about this festival than popular media can. Do you also think that the classic film elements of classic film and current classic movies helps keep the content generated by the fans more evergreen? Yeah, I mean, you will still have the inevitable blogger who's going to do 5,000 words on the plot of Gone with the Wind. Yeah. You know, and God bless them. If that's how they want to spend their free time, yeah. you know, that's more power to them. But yeah, the process of refining and restoring and cleaning up and tweaking these great old films does give a lot of us an excuse to write about them. Yeah. You know, because there's a new Warner Archive DVD that comes out that we're going to write about. I do think, though, that, that you know, rights holders for these things need to be careful about how they're using the word restoration. Yeah. Because it's getting to a point now where... I feel like the word restoration should be in quotation marks sometimes because, you know, you have films being restored over and over again when they were kind of okay where they were. Right. And, it, you know, when or, does it become a marketing hook? And when, it, when does it? Because it's like the unrated label on, on DVDs to try to sell it. Uh, and, and also, when does the restoration hinder the experience? I was talking to, uh, you know, our friend... Lou Luminick from the New York Post about this. Yes. You know, he sat in on the 42nd Street restoration screening and said that it was actually a big improvement over the last formal restoration of that film, which scrubbed it a little bit too much, took out a little bit too much grain. Right. Um, you you know, need some of that grain. You need some of that grain. When I went to see Pinocchio, one of the highlights for me of this festival was seeing Pinocchio at the El Capitan Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And um, the presenter, who is actually going to be one of the co-hosts of the TCM Essentials Junior this summer, which is uh, going to run under a new brand name, right. I think called TCM Movie Camp. Is it? Yeah. I, I hadn't heard that. Okay. You heard it here first, folks. All right, there it is, um, But, 
you know, that presenter was like, you know, like Disney said, Disney restored the film, cleaned it up, got rid of all the grain, and I was like, whoa, 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 no, you you don't want to, you know, grain is filmic, yeah, and if you like old movies, you like grain. So when restoration means, particularly with animation, yeah, make it look like CGI, right. That's restoration gone amok. It is. And that's kind of, I think that's where I was going with my original question, is where does restoration, rather than restoring, the root word, right, restoring to the filmmaker's original vision, where does it instead superimpose something else on it? Yeah, and and it is a fine line. And, and, you know, as beautiful as Pinocchio looked, there were moments where it looked almost computer generated and and if you've been watching the treasures from the Disney vault on TCM which is you know every couple months they've been doing this they ran the three caballeros a week or two ago and that looked so scrubbed like it was made on a computer last week you know and I think part of restoration needs to be to restore things to the way they looked not to kind of trick yeah. uninformed viewers into thinking it's newer. True definition of restoration. Yeah. Restore it to how it would have looked to audiences in 1937. You would think. Wow. You would think. Let's keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, for for anybody who's, if you love old movies, you know, you certainly need to be at this festival. I mean, even like, even if you're a complete weirdo who doesn't like people you this is like the four days of the year that you will want to talk to people you will want to hang out with people you will want to interact with people i guarantee you i mean it's a great experience yeah i guess i think religious is the right experience yeah i I do i think one more thing i want to hear your input on the ratio of digital versus 35 millimeter presentation all right well i you know i track this pretty Closely, yeah. <laughs> no, and and TCM is very smart because they know people like me exist, yeah. waiting to write the blog post that says, for the first time ever, <laughs> TCM programs more films digitally than in 35 millimeter at the TCM Classic Film Festival, or quote unquote film, film festival. They are very good about either commissioning or acquiring enough 35 prints so. The number still is more physical film than digital. It seems like it's an improvement over last year in terms of sheer numbers of this is a 35 millimeter presentation. Although I was a little bit disappointed because The Wind and the Lion was supposed to be 35. It turned out to be DCP. Oh, did it really? Yeah. And I'll give them credit. It looks beautiful, but the program's a 35 millimeter. Right, right. You know, I mean, they, they, there are roughly 80 films, and when you program in the, the repeats on Sunday, the TBAs on Sunday, it usually ends up netting out at about 43 or 44 film versus 40 digital, and I suspect it will be the same this year. And that's important. I think it's policy-wise important, because, you know, there is a community that's leading the charge to keep film alive, and it's good to have a, a channel that's sort of involved with that. And a venue for it. Yeah, and a, and a venue where people are going to be super excited about seeing right. a 30, even if it's 
not a great 35 millimeter print. Christmas in July yeah. played here in a slightly beaten up 35 millimeter print. And it was comforting because it was like, I see this, the wear on this, it feels genuine. It's wear that is there from other experiences. Right, you're, you're feeling the fact that this thing played a bunch of other places exactly. with yeah. a bunch of other people. On that note, from my point of view, this is the TCM Film Festival. It is very difficult to get 35mm prints, but if any film festival can do it, it's this one. You this bet. kind of has to lead the charge. You know, I think TCM understands and respects that. They understand that for a certain percentage of the audience, the delivery medium matters. And it's like there are so many reasons to love. You know, TCM is a corporate entity. They're a for-profit corporate entity. But as for-profit corporate entities go, they're pretty good people. Yes. And they deserve our support in whatever way we can do that. And that's why I tweet about this and what's on their air. And I write blog posts about them. They're not paying me. You know, I don't work for them. But I want them to keep doing what they're doing. Will, thanks for talking to me so much about this. My, my pleasure. We'll do it again next year. It's always good to talk to Will and get his interesting thoughts on not only the film festival, but film preservation in general, as well as different formats for displaying and exhibiting film. I know that Will is passionate about film, and it's good to hear his outlook on things, because he thinks things through. But now that I've let other people talk about their experiences, I think what I'm going to do is play for you a conversation I had in the car on the way back to San Diego from the festival. This conversation is with Beth Accomando, who is on Twitter under the Twitter name Cinebeth, as well as Bill Romero, who joined us on the trip and shared a room with us in Hollywood for the event. And hopefully this can be a watch list of sorts, since one of the great things about TCM is spreading the word about film and hoping that we can instill the same kind of passion in others. I hope you do try to find the films we talk about, and I hope that most of them will be readily available to you. <laughs> that being said, this is a conversation in a car, so you'll hear some car noises, but I think you'll enjoy yourself. I am in the automobile on the 5 South on the way back to San Diego from Hollywood, California, where we just spent four days at the 2015 Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. Uh, another amazing year of films, and we're going to wrap up our experiences. I am sitting in the car with my roommates for that weekend. I'm not going to say their names. I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves. All right, I'm Beth Accomando, author of the blog Cinema Junkie, and, and one of the film geeks. One of the film geeks. And I'm Bill Romero, and I'm a movie buff. And former projectionist. Oh, there we go. Let's, let's, let's bring out all of your, your and, qualifications. And I worked for Landmark Theaters for almost 20 years. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about some of our highlights, some of the things that we really adored about the, uh, the experience at the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival, and uh, why we think it's an important festival in general. We'll start by talking about some of the regular film screenings that we saw, because one of the things about this festival is it forces you to make decisions. It'll put one excellent film right up against another excellent film, and then you have to decide which one you're going to see. So we'll talk about some of the choices we ended up making and uh, how we felt about those decisions. Does that sound good, everyone? Sounds good. Yep. Well, 
Thursday so let's night. start on Thursday night. Yeah. Our arrival at the festival, where we already faced a number of hard choices. Right out the right out right the out of the gate. Yeah. My hard choice was between Queen Christina and Too Late for Tears, which were both films that I'd seen, but never on the big screen. So we opted for Too Late for Tears, which is a film noir with Elizabeth Scott, which considering she just passed away, I think was a nice way to pay tribute to her. And it is an amazing noir. Yeah, it is amazing. It and really I is. Bill and I had not seen it. Yes. Never. So that was a no factor idea. in our decision making between yes. those two. We should point out that, like last year, when it comes to what am I going to see, a, a big deciding factor is, am I going to expose myself to something new? Yes, something you haven't had a chance to see. And it's, it's levels of haven't seen. It's have you not seen the film at all? Yes. Have you not seen the film on a big screen? Right. Have you not seen the restored version? And um, who, will there be a discussion who's presenting? Yeah. I want to point out that there's an introduction by Robert Osborne in the program where he quotes Lauren Bacall, and the quote is, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it before. And I really liked that quote. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that is, is perfect and totally explains my reasoning, or our reasoning, I would say, in, in choosing things that we hadn't seen before. So, Too Late for Tears, 1949, starring uh, Elizabeth Scott, uh, I have a really hard time Arthur pronouncing Kennedy. Arthur Kennedy. Pronouncing Dan's last name. Dan DeFore. DeRay. DeRay. Oh, DeRay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Don DeFore. Don DeFore. Dan DeRay. Nice. And I would say, to dovetail off of Lauren McCall's remark, I would say film noir never gets old either. That's yeah, true. <laughs> so I, I will give Too Late for Tears the award for best line, best single line. <laughs> of the weekend. Of the weekend. Yeah. Because... <laughs> We've got Elizabeth Scott talking to the tough guy who's already acted stupid. Right. And asking him, so what do I call you besides stupid? <laughs> that, and then later after he realizes exactly how lethal and dangerous she is and how he's no tough guy compared to her, he says something about, hey, tiger, don't change. I wouldn't want you with a heart. Great lines in noir. Yeah, yeah. He ends up a whimpering kitty cat in comparison to her tiger. Later that night, we uh, had another really difficult decision. My Man Godfrey versus Seahawk. You know, I love My Man Godfrey. I, I love do. William Powell. However, that movie works just fine on any screen. Like, it, it's not a huge production, and it is generated by its performance and its dialogue. However, the movie that went up against it, you really need a big screen to fully appreciate it. So, That's true. So I, even though... It was still a tough call. It was still yeah. a tough call. <laughs> but I, think, God, yeah. I think all of us here had seen both those movies several, yeah. several times. But um, Powell and Lombard in a screwball comedy. I know, it's such a great film. But the other movie was The Seahawk with Errol Flynn. And that screams for a big screen presentation, I would say. Yes. Especially that end fight where you get the huge shadows behind them while they're sword fighting. Like <laughs> oh, that it's so exciting. so gorgeous. Curtis. Yes. Michael oh, yeah. Curtis. And that scene of tension where they're uh, unchaining themselves from the galley. Oh, my God. It's like, uh... Bill, you were you were like a hyperactive three-year-old in that scene. I, 
I've never seen anyone tap their feet so quickly. <laughs> it was working my nerves. <laughs> Are they going to make it? I haven't seen Seahawk in probably 35, 40 years. So I wasn't sure how, you know. How it would hold up? How it would work. No, no, no. I mean, how it would, how the scene would work out. Oh, right, right. I mean, I kind of figured it's Flynn, they're going to get away, but... And that's that's the magic of, well, any movie, really, but especially any movies... Any good movie. Any good movie. But especially movies from the period, because now, you know, in modern cinema, there's a chance that you'll have an ending that's not quite as happy. Not not very normal, but it can happen. But with, with the older, especially films, adventure and swashbuckling films like The Seahawk, you're guaranteed... A happy ending. The hero is going to win. So, but even given that, for there to be that kind of scene of tension is pretty remarkable. It was a lot of fun. Just two movies day one, but it was only a half day. (laughs) And we also didn't have to go to bed at three or four in the morning, except Beth still did. (laughs) I was filing a story. (laughs) On Friday, we began the movies with Reign of Terror, which was an interesting film. Again, let's point out that TCM does tend to set themes for their festivals. Right. This year was history through movies. So this That's vi- his, not history oh, of movies, right, right, but history. Although we did get a little sidebar of history of movies, I have right. to say, that kind of dovetailed off of that. But yeah, so their theme was how Hollywood depicts history. And this is an interesting little film <laughs> because... <laughs> It's a very American production depicting the French Revolution, with Robert Cummings insisting, I am a Frenchman. (laughs) And yet, it still works. It still works. I think, I mean, I had a lot of fun watching that film. Partly, again, because of the cinematography. There was a mention about the painting with light, and that film did that really well. A lot of very strange camera angles that... Ominous. Very ominous. Yeah. The use of close-ups to show madness <laughs> are really well done in that movie. And this is the one that had Jack Pierce doing the makeup, and we had a couple of rather gruesome little scenes. Surprising, Surprising for yeah. the time period. Yeah, I think that was 49. 49 also. Yeah, that was also 49, like uh, Too Late for Tears. Shocking flood scenes, great use of shadows, like a noir. It was described as a noir that takes place in the French Revolution, which is uh, an interesting concept in and of itself. And that had, looked up the guy's name, now I can't remember who it was. Uh, his last name is Moss. Moss. Andy Moss? Anthony Moss? Anthony Moss. I'll have he to played a subordinate character, but he was so wonderful and delivered his lines my favorite line from that one was when Robert Cummings and Arlene Dahl are kissing in the middle of the French Revolution, <laughs> and this guy comes out and he says, you know, we're in the middle of the revolution. Better get to bed early or something like that. Don't stay out late. <laughs> don't stay out late. Yeah. We're in the midst of a revolution. Don't stay out late. Um, but he had this sarcasm running through his performance that was a little contrary to a lot of the other ones who seemed very sincere throughout them. Bill, you didn't see that one, though. No. What did you see? I saw The Proud Rebel, and it's an Alan Ladd film he made with his son. They play, the boy is supposed to be a mute 
who was so traumatized by the destruction of their home in the south so the boy's been so horrified by the war that that he doesn't speak but anyway Olivia de Havilland came back to American films for this it was one of her first roles in a number of years it was a great little film had you seen it before no never never had no idea um, it's sort of later on in Lad's career, and the ravages of time are showing a bit. De Havilland played the role with almost no makeup on at all and nothing to glamorize her. But they had a hard slog the whole the whole time. Did you see two movies in that period? Yes, you saw Chimes at Midnight. You saw Chimes at Midnight. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight. He borrows from... I. It was subtitled like The Five Kings, but it... He takes Falstaff's character through, I think, three or four of the Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth. Yeah. And the Queen Mary Wives of Windsor. Yeah. So it's, yeah, two two of the um, Tudors, the War of the Roses story. Yeah. As well as uh, the story that brought Falstaff back, right? There we go. So, yeah, so it's sort of like Rosen. And Gildenstern, where it's the semi-peripheral character becomes the center of the story by borrowing from the three Shakespeare, at least three Shakespeare. Shall we mention that we would like to bring this to San Diego? We would like to bring this to San Diego as part of a Shakespeare film series. Oh yeah. yeah. So those of you, it's San an amazing Diego. production. Margaret Rutherford's in it in a small role, and uh, Gilgood plays Henry the Fourth. And Orson Welles is nice and spelt that year. Oh, yes. There we go. It, it is his rotundity. One of the highlights of the film festival is always their pre-code films that they bring out. Oh, Most yeah. of these have been hard to find. Some of these are restored. They call these their discoveries because yeah. some of them have been out of commission for a long time. So this was... Don't Bet on Women, with a non-singing Jeanette McDonald. Another one, not, none of us had seen this one. Yes, and an amazing Una Merkel. Yeah, yeah. oh my God. Feeling the show. Feeling really. the show, <laughs> my God. What's interesting about Don't Bet on Women is it starts out with an almost cartoonish misogyny, but kind of turns that on its head in a very, very funny way. It was said that the, the sharpest lines come from the ladies in it, that has to be true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then that night, of course, was a highlight for us. This is something we planned for from way early on, which was On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, man. On the Her underrated Majesty. Bond. Yes, highly underrated. One of my favorite Bond films. So when they announced this, I remember I immediately... I don't know if I texted you or, or sent you a message, Matt, but it's like, yes. Our Majesty's Secret Service is going to be at TCM Film Festival. So there was no doubt about us catching that one. No, this has one of my favorite Bond women, which is Diana Rigg. Yeah. She is awesome. She even pulled some, like, Emma Peel-type action in that one. Yep. So it's yeah. really great. But she and does take and out a She doesn't karate, but damn, she does. <laughs> But that was a lot of fun on the big screen. I mean, I have to admit, uh, George Lazenby is not my favorite Bond actor. However, he is 
quite serviceable in this film. Uh, but the film itself is really one of the best bonds in terms of the script, the villains, the Diana Rigg character. I mean, all those elements come together so wonderfully. And if Sean Connery had just stuck with Bond for one more film, it would be the this best. could be hands down the best Bond film. It was my first time seeing it on that huge screen and seeing Bond ski away from machine gun toting goon on one ski <laughs> with that theme playing, I, I couldn't sit still. I felt like I was five years old again. Well, for me, the most impressive thing is he never, ever acted or appeared in a film before, and, but he's a natural on the screen, really. I mean, he, you know... Yeah, he seemed quite comfortable. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's a great word and, for it. And there's so many actors that coming into the situation, um, you know, would have been so stiff and and kind of dull and boring. Especially picking up the baton of something so iconic now. <laughs> yes, yeah. especially the intimidation of following in Sean, Connery. Sean Connery's footsteps after what he'd made four bonds at that point. Or, uh, we had Doctor No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. So oh, five. yeah. This was the sixth one. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah, sixth of the Eon, <laughs> the Eon Productions Bond films, we'll say. Yeah. If you don't count, you know, Casino Royale and some of the other wacky ones that came before it. Well, from there, we moved on to the midnight screening. Well, I mean, immediately. We immediately. had no Immediately. No break. time. No break. <laughs> Which was frequent, but this was like negative five minute break. Yeah, the, the films actually overlapped. When, by the time Honor Majesty's Secret Service was over, boom was starting. <laughs> I yes. think. I, oh, wow. Boom. What? I have to say, I saw Boom, I think, the first time when I was quite young, like a kid, and all I remembered of it was being excessively bored, and so seeing it as an adult, I feel I could appreciate some of the unintentional humor of it all, <laughs> it's the, it's but it was still not a good film. No, what I, the best part about Boom was the mixture of reactions after that, because uh, I've talked to some people who were like, this is just a terrible just unwatchable. And then I talk to other people like Joel who say it's one of their highlights. <laughs> well, I think the appeal of it is the fact that Burton and Taylor were married. Yeah. And you get this weird sense of somehow getting to see their private lives through this public performance. I mean, you get moments where you go like, when they yell at each other or <laughs> are they acting right Yeah, now? are they acting or are they, you know, getting some of this out? But I will say that the highlight of the film for me was Noel Coward arriving on this island that Elizabeth Taylor owns and being carried on the shoulders of a man up these stairs. A to big the, man. Yeah. Like a pack mule. Yeah. Up to the house. A human pack mule to get him up. Yeah. That the was hill. hilarious. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And she's turned up to 11. And I don't think she had... She may have had some semblance of direction, maybe. But if she did, it was utterly ignored. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor did whatever she was thinking, it seemed, it seemed to me, anyway. And even if that's not true, I, I want to believe that it is. Well, it was sort of 
she brought Martha and yeah. Maggie the cat <laughs> to the performance, and then she's wearing her own jewels. Yeah. She has the huge um, emerald cut diamond on her hand that's the famous uh, Taylor Burton diamond <laughs> that costs over a million dollars. The camera can hardly handle her jewels at some point. <laughs> Even in wide shots. It's uh, like, I feel like I'm in. I'm watching those old uh, wartime movies in the desert where people are using mirrors as signals. <laughs> That's what Elizabeth Taylor looked like. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> well, and then she's wearing white all the time. Uh, we're going to move on, but I do have to say that seeing Boom at midnight after an exhausting 14-hour day of running around the movies, it puts you in just the right kind of mindset for that fever dream of a movie. Yes, surreal. <laughs> surreal excursion. Very surreal. I'm so appreciative of what a choice. You know, I, I, there are a few people working for someone, an entity like TCM, who would say, you know what, let's show Boom. <laughs> It was, it was an inspired programming decision, even if some people thought it was torturous. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Saturday, what do we have? Saturday we had some tough choices because there was the man who would be king, which is amazing oh, on man. a big screen. But that was up against a film that none of us had seen and another pre-code discovery, which is Why Be Good. The rule came in. The rule came in, and Why Be Good was amazing. It was a silence with Colleen Moore, and she was incredible. You could take out all the title cards from that film yeah. and still understand everything that's going on. And it's not this hammy overacting. No. She did exactly as much as she needed to do to convey what was going on within the context of a silent film, and she made it seem most natural in that context. And that's what that's what's amazing, especially for the silent era, which was known for exaggeration. She felt very natural. Yes. And just uh, there's no other word for it. She was she was adorable. Yes. Effervescent. Effervescent. Yeah. You know, her dancing and they do. I mean, the, the frame rate for the dance scenes is such that she's dancing at a million miles an hour. Yes. But, uh, Burning a hole in the carpet. Totally. But she looks great, and she looks yes. like she's having so much fun, and it's intoxicating to see. I defy anyone who might think a silent film is boring Yeah. to say that about Why Be Good, because I didn't have a dull moment in that one, and I hadn't seen it before. What a yeah. surprise. What a pleasant, I don't even want to say surprise, but blew away any expectation I had. And... She does have a very risque black lace brassiere scene <laughs> like decades before Psycho. <laughs> I don't want to throw that out there, too. <laughs> We're almost home. We're almost home, and we haven't even gotten through all of Saturday yet. Saturday, we made a choice also for The Picture Show Man. Right. A film none of us had seen. Um, I would suggest possibly the weakest of the films we saw. However, it's a story of traveling picture showman who would show film silent films around in Australia. So it, it dovetails nicely into the hand crank films that we'll talk about later that they showcased at this year's event. 
Uh, very quaint film yeah, from quaint. an era that gave us a lot of much more innovative and kind of edgy work. Right. So I think it had it was it had moments. That's a film that lived for its moments. A lot of charm. I wish we could remember the song. I know. Yeah. I tap, it, tap, tap. But also for me, the historical side of it, the experience of uh, you know the small towns and and the traveling film man comes comes to town, so it's an event that everybody attends because it's a unique experience that only happens a few times a year. What did we see after that? Uh-oh. The Wind and the, the Lion. lion. That was glorious on the big screen and that score by uh, Jerry Goldsmith and Sean Connery Candace Bergen never looked better and even though she was in the desert for an extended period yes but you needed the big screen for Brian Keith's performance as Teddy Roosevelt like he needed all that expanse on the big screen and he He's kind of the stand-in for John Milius. You can, he is the stand-in uh-huh. for John Milius in a lot of ways, which is funny because he's democratic. But yeah. uh, <laughs> if you could call Colleen Moore effervescent, you could say that about about him. <laughs> also, Dan, he's portraying a historically energetic man, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. But man. in a great way. Such a yeah. great way. One um, of the best teddies I've seen. I mean, this is a modern version of the swashbuckler carrying on a lot of the tradition we saw in the Seahawk and doing it brilliantly. It was, so it, much fun. It was advertised that that was going to be in 35mm, and it turned out to be in DCP, which may have been a disappointment for some people. But I have to say that, that it looked great. It looked the great. DCP looked really, really crisp and, and good, and uh, the colors were fantastic. So the last film of Saturday was Nothing Lasts Forever, a film that not only we had not seen, but a lot of people hadn't seen, because it had been shelved for a few decades. Yeah, it had been shelved for a long time because of a variety of reasons. With You know, it has Dan Hankoid in it, it has Bill, Bill Murray, Murray, Imogene Coker. Yeah, so many great actors, and spent decades on a shelf collecting dust without without an audience. And it's too bad, because as with Boom... Midnight movie. It's a perfect midnight movie. We're losing Bill now, because we've just arrived at Bill's house. <laughs> so the rest of this episode's going to be me and Beth. And that's what happens when you format a podcast around a trip home. <laughs> In a car ride. In a car ride. Okay, after the sad loss of Bill, <laughs> start the car up. And we're on the way to Beth's house, and let's see if we can and get... And did you want to say anything more about Nothing Lasts Forever? I think what I want to say about Nothing Lasts Forever is it's just the right blend of an honest kind of uh, love letter to classic cinema as it is a bizarre comedy. It's hard. What would, how would you even describe I don't know, but I would say forever? that it's almost as much of a fever dream as Boom was at almost midnight. <laughs> Yeah. In a very different way. Yeah, a different way because it's not it's not like painful to watch. Exactly, it's not painful at all. It's fun. Yeah. It's not lots as, of fun. Not as dour. <laughs> Boom can be kind of dour in places. I think because it's so just weird and out there and over the top. It, the in terms of story, you know, Zach Galligan rides a bus to the moon with a bunch of senior citizens, including, including Imogene Coco and some others. It's just a weird. It's just a weird story. A very weird story. But Bill Murray is just awesome. Just so much fun in it. 
Yeah, a lot of fun. And we'd like to bring this to San Diego as well. I would love to bring this to San Diego. Hear that, TCM? Hear that, Charlie Tabish? Let's talk. <laughs> we'll be making a call. <laughs> and so our last day of the festival, Sunday, started on an incredible high, uh, getting up early, but Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, after, Notre Dame. after just like a, 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 a two-hour hour sleep. sleep. Yeah. Another very difficult choice here. Talk about the difficult choice. Well, we had Nightmare Alley, which is one of Tyrone Power's best films. Uh, another kind of noir film. Circus noir. Circus noir. <laughs> uh, an amazing performance of film that he really fought to get, uh, even though it was kind of counter to the image that he had presented all this time as this Hollywood matinee mm -hmm. idol type. And it's a pretty bleak story. So we went. We ended up going with Hunchback Notre Dame for a couple reasons. Because it it's was fun and not bleak, right? <laughs> yeah, because it was in the Grauman, Chinese Grauman, so it was oh, yeah. the big theater. We wanted to make sure we saw one film in the big theater. It was the only one we saw in the in the IMAX. And the other thing is, is we are hoping to do a con man series here at the Digital Gym, and Nightmare Alley is likely to figure into that series. So we opted for Hunchback, which yeah. was not a bad choice. That was amazing on the big screen. That was so wonderful. I was Charles Lawton. When he says, a little city, that's when it opens the floodgates. Yeah, yeah, it just breaks your heart. Yeah, and, uh, and Maureen O'Hara is so yes. wonderful in it, too. What was amazing, it was interesting to see her performance kind of back-to-back -to, -back to Colleen Moore yes. in the silent film, because Maureen O'Hara is so still. She understands that doing less is doing more in the movies a lot of the time. Right. And... This is not a criticism of Colleen Moore's performance because what she did worked perfectly in the context of that film, but it was such a contrast that Mariner was so still, so quiet, and did so little in terms of uh, overt ex expression, and yet Sometimes it's a transcendent yeah. performance. Sometimes it was just like a portrait. Yeah. But, yeah, it was. It was a transcendent performance. It, 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 she communicated every feeling with looking off to the side. <laughs> yeah. And the makeup was impressive. It, it, and to see it on a big screen, when he goes up there with the gargoyles on yeah. Notre Dame. Uh, Swinging around. Yeah. Kicking those bells. It's really, really nice. Yeah. A wonderful way to start a Sunday. Another one with really good feeling. And yes, a wonderful way to start a Sunday on the final day of the festival. And we move from there to another classic from the same year. 1939, Gunga Din. Gunga Din. Which is one of my favorites. The film my dad introduced me to. And I saw for the first time at the Cinema Leo here in San Diego. I have only theater. seen this in bits and pieces years ago. So this was, for all intents and purposes, a brand new experience for me. And uh, I, I had a blast. It, it was like seeing... Indiana Jones again, but but it's the proto Indiana Jones. <laughs> it it is the epitome of the male camaraderie film. I mean, right. you, and that's the chief appeal of it for me is these three guys: Cary Grant, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Victor McLaughlin. You really get the sense that they have been hanging out for years, and that they've developed this friendship that they can poke fun at each other and. They can be in dangerous situations, they can rescue each other, they can still rib each other, and you totally believe it, and they're absolutely charming. But comedy is both kind of naturalistic, 
I mean, it's not like slapstick, you know. It, it's both naturalistic and um, and hilarious. Yes. It's very funny in, in parts, which doesn't at all take away from when it gets harrowing or when it becomes an action film. And really sometimes they're happening at the same time, and it and the comedy tends to come also from their characters. Yeah. Because you've got that scene at the end where they're they've been captured. Uh, Cary Grant's been tortured. They're most likely facing death, and they're trying to cut Cary Grant down. And Victor McLaughlin and, and Cary Grant are yelling at Douglas Fairbanks. Douglas Fairbanks is just sitting there with his you know hands on his knees and his chin on, a, on his hands and, and just like I you know I don't want to have anything to do with you guys right now. I'm yeah, just dead you. Or I think the line which which I love is yes. you displeased me greatly. I'm yes. going to ignore both of you. Yeah. <laughs> and even though bullets are flying and their lives are in danger. It is in the middle of a war zone. Yes. <laughs> I think the joy for me really uh, for, well it was all three of them but Victor McLaughlin I've seen him only when he's playing these really stiff Serious. upper lip kind of roles but in this, he has this charming, ridiculous smile that he gives the camera a lot. <laughs> that's just all teeth. And, and he has this scene with an elephant where he's, like, <laughs> pampering this elephant. And, oh, wow, what, what a wonderful film. That was, that was a, nice, a nice treat. And since you uh, recently did this uh, pre-code podcast about ethnic characters being played by whites, we should probably just make a quick mention yeah. of this film and maybe say something about it and, and why this film still stands up despite the fact we have a number of white actors playing Indian characters. Right. It's probably going to be a lot of, uh, of the same things I said in the other podcast, hopefully all of you are listening to, which is, A, um, it stands out because it's not buffoonery. They're playing characters rather than trying to play a caricature of another minority, so it has strength to all the characters, regardless of who's playing whom. And of course, it is in the historical context of being a film from 1939, I believe 39? Yeah. So, uh, so it, it, it's a really important film for that as well. Well, and we were talking too about the character played by Eduardo Cinelli? Cinelli. Cinelli, is Cinelli I believe, yeah. Who the Italian. Yeah. Yes. And um, we were pointing out that if his character wasn't trying to hurt the particular three characters we like, yeah. um, we were almost ready to back him. Yes, because he, he's he, very convincing. He, yeah, he talks in very real terms about the oppression of the uh, Indians, Indian people. During uh, colonial times. During colonial times. And he's saying valid things. He's not some total lunatic. He's not presented as somebody who's ridiculous. Right. He's not a wide-eyed savage. You know, he, he's, he's a very, real threat. He's a real threat and brilliant. And, and scary. And scary. Oh, God. He's so good. You know? But So I think that's interesting in the sense that there's validity to his character, and a lot of times you weren't getting that in some of the other films that were giving us white actors. as Right, yeah. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily like Charlie Chan. It was... It yeah. was a, a genuine character. A lot of that comes not only from his performance, but from the script. It's a smart script. Yeah, very it's a smart script. and very thoughtful. And also, it does it does have Kipling's poem, and mm -hmm. you know, I think it, I'm not sure if it's the absolute final lines of the film, but very close to is Kipling's line of "You're a better man than I am, Gunga Din." So after Gunga Din, 
Miguel took a break to do some work. Yes, I talked to Nora Lill, so I hope you listen to that. And I talked to Precode.com's Danny Reed, so I hope you listen to that as well. Part of my TCM Film Festival series of podcasts. And while Miguel was chatting away, uh, <laughs> Bill and I went to go see Philadelphia Story. We kind of continued the Cary Grant uh, motif to another film. And this is a classic screwball comedy. Everybody is brilliant in this. James Stewart, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn. A real treat to see that on the big screen, and we did stay at the Grommans for that, so we got to see another film there, and that was fabulous. So, yeah, when you saw the Philadelphia story, we'll call that the last of, you know, kind of the regular conventional film screenings that we saw. Uh, let's talk a bit about some of our favorite presentations now. I don't think we'll talk about every presentation, but uh, but some of the ones that really stood out. That's one of the things about the Turner Film Festival that's great, is they have these presentations that bring a lot of different for us. I think the highlight for me would be the hand crank film. Because how often do you get to go to a screening where they are actually using a projector and a projectionist who is hand cranking real film through a projector and you get to see it. And it really does bring you back to what it must have been like to see these kind of films for the first time. That was, and and that point right there is what made that presentation so special. Because not only were they showing the films, not only were they using the regular projector, not only did they have a collector bring in his, uh, his Edison phonograph to play a little music beforehand, but they tried to dress the part. They tried to use the same types of uh, interstitial cards that would happen between films. All of these elements, they, they really went above and beyond to try and place us in the state of mind of 1902 through 1913, I believe, which are, is the years they were showing films in, and they did a really, really great job, which also led to a lot of these films that they were showing with the hand-crank projector we had seen before, but it was like seeing them for the first time for that. Well, and the other thing about it was it was an evening of these films, so a lot of times you may have seen clips from these movies, yeah. or you may have seen an individual one. But when you sit there for a whole evening, and they were shown in a a chronological progression, so you could kind of see how some elements of the film form began to get refined. The language was being developed. Yeah. And so what's nice about that is it's just like when you start watching a silent film for the first time. The first few minutes, there's a little disjointedness to it because you got to kind of like re-acclimate yourself to what it was like. So watching a whole evening of these, you start to see how they're learning, how they're playing with the medium, how they get intrigued by certain things, and that's why we get effects like the first trip to the moon and some others where, and to see them all for over an hour, you really get immersed in that world, and you're no longer going like, oh, this is different from what I'm used to seeing, you're just totally into it. We weren't really sure exactly what to expect. I knew I wanted to find out about Technicolor. I really adore Technicolor as how it makes everything a kind of hyper-reality. So I wanted to hear more about it. And when we got there, the presenter came up to the podium and, and introduced it by saying, we're going to talk about early musicals. 
And, and I, like, I have to admit, I was a bit disappointed. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like. I, there are a lot of musicals I do like, but yes. it, it's not my it's not my genre of choice per se. And I would have loved to see like Technicolor stuff, say for the Adventures of Robin Hood, or some of those really great, overly saturated Technicolor stuff. But it was the dawn of Technicolor, and I gotta say, it's a little bit of a, a foot in my mouth because those early musicals were amazing. Were amazing. The talk about maybe being on some sort of opiate or something. <laughs> um, the the like leaps of imagination and the fantastical elements of some of these. We're just crazy. It, they're very bizarre, and what makes them nice is, is the sheer insanity yes. of them. Bill, who left earlier, is like, well, what about that insane one with the sisters? Like, which one's the insane one? <laughs> they're all equally insane. The Sultan's Jester. Oh. That one sticks out in my mind, not only because it has these, you know, really bad vaudevillian jokes, but um, the the uh, the numbers. There's this one number where these, you know oiled up muscly guys giant are, men yeah are tossing around their female dancer like a sack of potatoes yeah and just like swinging her at full velocity not only up high but really down low where i swear her head was just gonna crack <laughs> like an egg on the floor and my heart was just going skipping a beat every time <laughs> i'd never really seen anything like it so and not only not only the clips but but the presentation and the information and the book that they had yeah. which both of us ended up buying snapped up yeah was uh it was very good and we ended the festival on a really sweet note which is the grim game the houdini silent film with a live orchestra which is again another thing that they've consistently tried to do is the live music yeah and every year it's great the music's great the the, the talent they have doing the music's great i'm going to point out here that we have arrived at beth's house <laughs> but we're now parked in front of her house and a gentleman across the street is putting lumber into his truck so if you hear some some things that's what that is uh but we're going to keep talking because it's fun uh <laughs> the music's great but what was really awesome about the grim game not only was it for all intents and purposes lost because we had one guy who was kind of uh, uh holding the, the reels for ransom in his closet basically um but now it's fully restored due to kind of a uh, herculean efforts in the past year i've read about houdini you know since i was a kid and i've heard about all of his tricks like you know the classics the straitjacket the uh the shackles and all that and his his great escape attempts but the grim game gives us all of those and you can see them you can see them being performed it's kind of like seeing houdini he wrote a script to give his act it seems yeah. like and a lot of times it's really <laughs> kind of kind of contrived and far-fetched as the uh, why is he in a straitjacket now but it's but it, that's that's actually part of the fun yeah, and these stunts are right up there with Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton and, you know, more contemporary Jackie Chan. I mean, he's hanging off a building yeah. upside down in a straitjacket, and then we were told the, the planes, the real, planes were real, and they actually crash in midair uh, at one yeah. point while you've got a stuntman, like, on a rope hanging between them, and we were assured they were all survived. <laughs> we didn't see them all walk away in the film, but um, that's the assurance we got. Yeah. And when I saw that, per th there is a person climbing down a rope between two planes in the air. Two, like, biplanes. Two biplanes. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, Forget I'm Airport speechless. 75. No, this is on camera. <laughs> Shh. 
sheer insanity. Yes. Sheer insanity. And you really do catch yourself, you know, like... <gasps> yeah, yeah. I was, like, fanning myself. And that is how we ended the festival with films. <laughs> yeah. What an incredible close. It was. Yeah. And we didn't even get to mention, we had, there were a couple of people who were just presenters. George Lazenby was there. Yeah. Without a filter. Without uh, any filter. Norman Lloyd was there, 100 years old, and sharp as a tack, giving us some wonderful insights into film. And um, Terry Leonard, the stuntman. Terry man. Leonard. And John Milius was in the audience watching yeah. Women Lion with us. But Terry Leonard talking about some of the stunts. He's such a legend in stunts. Yeah. And... I, again, to, to not to toot TCM's horn too much, but I'm going to toot their horn. Giving that much of... They do a whole video introduction for Terry mm-hmm. Leonard for these kind of underappreciated elements of the films who are kind of doing the hardest. <laughs> well, and we... Because of the choices we made, we didn't see any of the films where Ann V. Coates was, but That's she's right. a film editor. Mm-hmm. And film editors are not generally given the spotlight... So they do make this effort throughout to highlight people who are not necessarily in the spotlight. Right, and to give a voice to those who aren't, because I, I do genuinely think that TCM appreciates film and all of the aspects that go into filmmaking. On that note of Anvi Coates, they not only appreciate her, but they appreciated her enough to give her a programming block. You know what that was? No. Don't it tell was, me what I missed. It was one of the things we missed. <laughs> It was one of the ones that generated the most head-scratching, but I think it's very interesting. It is Anvi Coates who picked Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. There was a lot of flack from, you know, stuffy nerds about that choice. But uh, we didn't go to see that. Well, and I think... <laughs> but I think a lot of people were there. For not me. having seen it, but from an editor's point of view, she edited for decades. Yeah. And so I think what could have been interesting about that presentation is a look back at how editing had changed and, you know, what kind of films she had worked on and how that film fit into it. And it may also be, you know, for an editor, the thing is, there's a wide variety of editors out there. If you were editing for Alfred Hitchcock, you were not making quite so many decisions as an editor who was working for Robert Altman. Yes. Because Hitchcock shot very tightly without a lot of extra footage. Um, even if you wanted to change something, chances are you wouldn't have had the shots or the heads or tails on other scenes to be able to make a change from the script or from what Hitchcock specifically intended. I think that's what a lot of people don't know is how much power the editors have over the final story, you know, for a lot of films. And because it varies. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it does really depend on how the film was shot and, you know, how the director plans it. And if a director plans it so precisely that he doesn't give you any other choices, then an editor's job is pretty mundane. But for her, I'm not sure where that film might have fit in and why. I mean, I would have been curious to see her introduction. introduction. I wanted to know what her her reasoning would be. So whoever was out there who went and saw it, yeah, let me know. Let us know. Hopefully it'll be on the TCM site, too. Is that it? Are we done? Are we done? What else are we going to talk about? So one of the things is... They do set these themes. Mm-hmm. This was uh, Hollywood, history through Hollywood. But what I thought was interesting is the way there is also a sense of cinema history that was going on yes. through this. So you could get Patton and mm-hmm. see World War II. And you all could the John see, Ford films. Yeah, My Darling Clementine and, uh, you know, a, a smaller character like Teddy Roosevelt in Wind in the Line. So you're getting this sense of how Hollywood depicted history, but we were also getting a very strong sense of film history in and not in the sense of looking at different decades but the sense you know of 
the here are the hand crank, yeah, yeah. The, the technicolor, how that developed, how that influenced mm -hmm. films, how that changed what kind of films people wanted to make, what kind of films people wanted to see, and, oh, you know, the hand-cranked films. On the same note, there's a presentation that was wonderful and we haven't discussed, and that was Craig and Ben from, talking about For, Gunga Din. For Gunga Din, yeah, yeah. which was, they also did the same type of presentation. Robin Hood, they were great. Gunga. They are so good, and they are visual effects artists themselves, and so uh, they go out and they have a lot to talk about and a lot to add to it, but it's on it's on the same point you're making is they're adding, um, they were able to talk about visual effects with the matte paintings and, and that kind of, and composites, uh, which a lot of people hear a lot about, but a lot of people don't get a lot with sound design. That seems to be another one that's really under, underappreciated. Mm -hmm. And they threw that into the Gunga Din presentation. Well, and then again, that kind of complements the Terry Leonard, because mm -hmm. we got to see some of the stunts that were done in the Gunga Din film right. because they had some behind the scenes 16 millimeter footage that was shot by Douglas Fairbanks. It was just and a home video. Terry Grant. And, uh, but Terry Leonard was very big on the fact that it's much better to have a real stunt, to have a practical effect, mm -hmm. because it engages the audience in a different way. And so we see very early versions of this in the Houdini film, right. and then in Gunga Din, and then in The Wind and the Line. And we can see this kind of lineage that's going through it. So I think there's, even though that might not have been the overt theme it worked better. of the, the festival, yeah. I think it ended up being the subconscious leitmotif running through the festival as and well. And my, my that's my favorite elements, is seeing that, uh, what goes into it. The innovation of the early pioneers of this medium is, is awesome. Well, it's the end of TCM Film Festival 2015. It's kind of like a a post-festival depression. It's back to work in your daily life. <laughs> but uh, but I would say it did inspire us to come up with some programming mm -hmm. for the film geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema. So be be looking for some. And that potential. is how all of you here in San Diego can benefit from this because there are a lot of really underappreciated gems out there, and the real way to appreciate them is on a big screen with other people who are just as obsessed and uh we're gonna try and do many versions of that right here in san diego just like we've been doing so this episode is another in my classic film series right now to go along with the pre-code episode i just put up with angela englert where we discuss race representation in film and i have two more episodes coming up that are inspired by the turner classic movies film festival the next episode will be an interview and a discussion with the creator of Precode.com, Danny Reed. And then the episode after that, I can't wait to put it up. I talked to Nora Lofores, who is the social media marketing person for Turner Classic Movies itself. Nora Lil has been great at getting me access to different things for Turner Classic Movies, as well as helping to set up my own appearance on TCM, where I got to talk to Ben Mankiewicz about the thing from another world as part of their fan favorites section, which they piloted around Thanksgiving of last year. And so it was, I'm really happy I get to talk to her. So that'll be episode 132. A lot of good stuff coming up. More classic film oriented than monster movie or horror movie oriented. But film is my first passion. And the classic monsters or horror stuff is, uh, is a passion that springs forth from that. 
So I hope you'll enjoy these episodes. Remember to follow me on Twitter at HiffSD. That's H-I-F-F-S-D, where we can talk about films all you want. And join us on live tweeting, TCM Party, and hashtag DriveInMob, and hashtag TrashTuesday, and hashtag PMovieManiacs. In fact, if you just go to LiveTweeting.org, you'll find all kinds of live tweeting needs. On HIFilmFest.com, you can check out our calendar. Just click the calendar link at the top to see what exciting San Diego events we are bringing to you. So, until next episode, next time we tweet, and the next San Diego film event, please still remember to stay scared.